have been kind enough to ask, since my wife's in Japan, how I'm doing. I'm, I'm doing well. I, I have matching socks, so that worked out. Um, eating okay, but uh, thank you, thank you for that. Um, they they seem to, like I said, had a little stressful time, but but they're they're doing they're doing well and uh, doing a lot of good things. Um, you know, some people they look at me and see that I don't have hair, and maybe Eric over there, and Arnold, some of the others stand, and they think it's a curse, but it's, it's actually a, a blessing, you know, it's, it's a good thing. But it wouldn't be unusual if you think it's a bad thing, because for over 6,000 years, at least in history, there have been attempts to, to help grow hair, basically. Um, Baldness isn't a new thing, and growing hair um, has been a, a pursuit of, of humanity. I, there's one that's called uh, that was in Ireland about a thousand years ago, and what they did is they took mice and they buried, they put them in a jar and they buried them for a year by the fire, and then they, a year later, took the mice, took it out, and of course. They're no longer, it's more like mice goo at this point. And I guess they put it on their head. Um, another one in China, fermented rice water shampoo. Again, not sure that these actually work, but people have sworn by them. In the United States, you know, we like technology. So, you know, one of the technologies that came out you know, 60, 70 years ago, anybody ever use one of these? Um, no? Uh, this one was uh, called the thermocap, and apparently you just put it on your head every evening and it would make your, um, it'd make it warm up there, and apparently that would increase blood flow, which would, in theory, make your, make your hair grow. Um, the other one is called the, the Curvac. It was actually a vacuum that you put on your head, and uh, same kind of thing, be able to I guess suck the hair right out of your out of your head. I'm not sure that's the science behind it, but but you know, and you can talk to the favorite bald person in your life, and if they are having issues, they haven't embraced the beauty of baldness. Um, if they haven't, then these are possible Christmas gifts for them. These are also ingredients that throughout history. Um, cures for, for baldness. And again, if you need this slide, I'll give it to you later. You can, you can take it and use it. I'm pretty sure you can find some of that stuff around here. I'm not sure what all of it is. I do like the one that says hot sauce because we all have hot sauce. So pour hot sauce on your head every night and see what happens. Well, the thing about medical quackery and all these things that have gone on for for as long as there's been human beings, is that, is that you know, they, they often say there's a method, there's a science behind it, but, but where's the proof? You know, is there, is there actual proof, evidence? Because you would think that, that you would be able to provide evidence about something like you're bald and now you have hair, right? That if I put, you know, year-old dead mice on my head, that at some point in time somebody would have figured out 
this isn't working, or this does work. And you would look for proof. And we're kind of like that, and, and it's, it's okay. We, we should want proof for things. We should want evidence. But for some reason, when it comes to things like truth, and it comes to things like faith, and it comes to things like when we talk about Christianity, a lot of times we want to back off. We want to back off proof. We want to back off evidence. Oh, we don't mind, you know, arguing about what the Bible teaches. We don't mind arguing about, you know, archaeology and, and things like that and, and providing that kind of apologetic answer to things. We don't mind doing that. But the proof we kind of run away from, the proof that we, we don't talk about too much, is actually the dominant proof that the Bible says is evidence that Jesus Christ is who he says he is, and he did what he said he did. What is that proof? Well, the proof is, is you. The proof is, is that, is that your life, our lives, have not only been so radically changed years and years and years ago, but are being changed even now. You know, a couple weeks ago, I gave you the somewhat depressing news for some people that, that, that we are all actively sinning. We are all actively sinning. Right now, you are somehow sinning. And if nothing else, it's because none of us can say, I am perfectly doing everything that God wants me to do. We can say we're not doing the bad stuff, but are we doing everything perfectly? And if we, if we really can't say that, then, then we are all actively sinning. But here's the good news. The good news is that, is that if we're truly Christians, if we're truly disciples of Christ, we're also all actually growing. We're all actually actively changing right now. Becoming more like Christ right now. The world needs to see that. The world needs to see it. And that's one of the reasons that we have churches. Because it's easy to have, to be like, you know, be a good person at work for a while. You know, you're, you're there for, you know, a period of time. And I, I can almost guarantee you that all of you know at least one person who you think is good. And if we put up the list of all the people you think are good, I guarantee you on that list there would be some people who are Christians, and there would be some people who are atheists, and there would be some people who are Buddhist, and some people who are, who are Hindu or Muslim or something like that. They, they could come from any background, and you could have, you could have a good person. Understand, Christianity is not about making good individuals. That's one of the things that we've been taught that's wrong. We do want to be good individuals, don't get me wrong. But what God came to do is he came to establish his people. He came to create a good society. He came to create these communities that 
that we can legitimately call the body of Christ. Because the way that the individual members of the community relate to one another in such a way that, that people look and they see, there's the proof. Look at how they love each other. Look at how they forgive each other. Look at how they fight like cats and dogs. And then they reconcile. And it's all better. Look at how they don't have to force everybody to be exactly the same way and dress exactly the same way and, and like the same things. And they can, they, can actually, they can actually have unity without uniformity. Look at that. Look at how these people who don't even know each other, don't know each other in, a, in the way that the world typically thinks. They don't work together. They're not family. And yet they're bound together. They're united in a way that is as or more powerful than family. They're not bound together by their common interest in the things of the world. They're bound together by the Holy Spirit. That's the evidence. Otherwise, Christianity just sounds like the thermovac. Sounds like somebody telling you all these things that seem to sound good and seem to make sense, and somebody else is selling you something else, and you're getting all of that. And, and if you, before you buy, the question you need to ask is, where is the proof? Where is the proof? And the proof is us. Again, I've said this before, I'll say it many times. If I was God, I wouldn't have trusted us. I wouldn't have taken this, this precious truth and say, the compelling evidence is going to be human beings accepting that truth, being changed in such a way they live together as one. I think that's kind of a crazy plan. But I know why God did it. I know why he is doing it. And it's what we've been talking about for the past few weeks. The reason is, is because when we understand how impossible it is for us to ever even get close to being what the church is supposed to be, when it happens... When it happens, we're going to go, that was God. It wasn't me. Hey, no offense to some of you, but if we weren't Christians, I'm not sure I'd want to hang out with you on a Sunday morning. No offense. I'm pretty sure you don't want to hang out with me. If we weren't a church, you know, there's like, there's 49er fans here. I mean, come on. Why would I want to be in the same place with a 49er fan when the NFL is on? Crazy. Some of you are like, you know, you'd rather be at the beach or you'd rather, you know, be, you know, shopping or, you know, taking care of stuff at the house or just sleeping. And if we were going to hang out with people, we want to hang out with people who have the same interests as us, that are basically the same age, have similar backgrounds. And the powerful evidence of the church is that people, 
from every walk of life can genuinely love one another. And it's not because they're the same age. It's not because they're from the same socioeconomic status. It's not because they like the same team. It's not because they're, you know, they have the same level of education. It's not because they're, they're the same gender or they have the same political beliefs, but it's because they've been so changed through faith in Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit Kahalamaw here, and if you saw different groups of people, right? You saw a group over here, and it's all a bunch of 20-somethings. You'd think, like, that's ah, some friends, maybe classmates, you know, getting together. You saw a bunch of, you know, 70, 80-year-olds. You'd think, same thing. They're there, and just maybe grabbing a meal, hanging out together. But if you saw a group at Kahala Mall, maybe sitting out there in the little food eating area, and they're, they're all different ages, and they're different ethnicities, and they seem to come from different walks of life, you would only think one thing. You would think, must be a family. Must be a family. But if it's not a family, it's going to be the church. It's going to be us. And people are going to see that and go, it's got to be a family. And if they come over and somehow engage in a conversation with one or more of us, and they're like, you know, are you, are you guys having a family reunion or something? It's like, well, sort of. We're part of God's family. We go to the same church. We come over here sometimes and have lunch together. And that person is going to see that message. They may not fully get it, but they're going to see, like, these people have no earthly reason to be at the mall together. And there they are. Having raised three daughters and having sat through more than than, than my share of ballet recitals, okay? And I'm going to tell you, these were ballet recitals in the dark ages before smartphones, okay? Before you could check your fantasy football scores while the other kids were dancing until your kid came up, right? You're sitting through three hours of it, right? And I always thought, what a powerful testimony it is. What a powerful testimony it is. If, 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 you're, if you're there with other people from the church, and especially to the dad like me, who's only there for the three minutes his daughter goes across the stage, and they're like, oh, which one's your daughter? Which one's your granddaughter or your grandson or whatever? And you're like, oh, no, no, no. None of them are. We're just part of the church. It's one of our church families. We're here to support. We love to be able to, to kind of be there in these moments in their lives. Doesn't have to be ballet, could be football games, whatever, right? But what's the idea? The idea is, is that we're doing things 
that people think only families do. Otherwise, we tend to divide up into groups based on something else, something that everybody readily acknowledges. But when the world sees the church, the diverse church, truly loving one another, it's pretty powerful evidence. So John, 2,000 years ago, he's helping this this church understand the differences between true and false teachings. Remember, these false teachers have come in, and John is the last of a generation. He's, he's, he's the last one who's one of the leaders and perhaps the last one who ever actually saw Jesus and walked with Jesus. And now he's, he's here about 60 years later. And these false teachers have come in, and they've said stuff that kind of sounds true. And it kind of makes sense, but it's wrong. It's false, and it's dangerous. So John is trying to help this church. And he says in chapter 2, verses 3 through 6, And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, the tr- uh, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. We talked about this Wednesday night that what John is doing is he's using this kind of um, this, uh, this figure of speech, this literary device where, where he's repeating the same key thought three times. And he's doing it for, for emphasis. And, and the overall key thought is, is, that, is, that, is that truth, truth is, is going to come out in how we live. And, and he gives some, some, some examples. And he talks about it's going to come out. And it's going to come out in, 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 in keeping his commandments. It's, it's going to come out in that God's love is perfected in us. It's going to come out in that we walk as Jesus walked. And he's using, he's using similar phrasing, similar words to repeat this key thought again and again and again. And so when we look at this, we look at the first way he says this. He says, we, this By this we know we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. What John is trying to do is he's trying to say that obedience, obedience is still central to being a Christian. You cannot be a follower of Christ and and not be obedient to Christ. That's unfortunately one of the things that's, that's become kind of fashionable in our world. And it's not a new thing. I don't blame the millennials for this. This, this is something parents and grandparents are doing. They, they, they thought that, you know, we can just have the right beliefs and we can be kind of selective about the obedience part. In fact, a lot of people, when, they're, when they were selective about the obedience part, they actually left out the most important commandment, the greatest commandment. 
And so they could feel very good about themselves because they weren't, they weren't disobeying these other commandments. But like the rich young ruler, they weren't obeying the most important commandment. They weren't loving God with all, they, with all that they were. They weren't loving others as themselves. Kind of left that on the side. Oh, but you ask him to check the right beliefs box? They got that. You ask them to go down the Ten Commandments, they got that. They're not, they're not breaking any of those. But they're failing on the most important commandment. It's not a new thing. We've become somewhat selective. But this obedience to God, and it's obedience especially when obedience goes against societal norms when it goes against the norms of our culture. It's one of the reasons, and I'm gonna say I was probably part of this. Most of us were too. But there was a time when um, homosexuality, those kind of behaviors, there was a time when, when the people that were engaged in those behaviors were, were, were looked down upon by society. They, that's why they had the term, you know, stay in the closet, don't let anybody know. The societal norm was don't care about these people, ignore them. We missed an opportunity, church. That was the time. That was the time to say, okay, God, how do we love that community? How do we love those people? The people that the rest of the world, the rest of society is looking down upon, how do we love them? Not how do we condone their sin. It's sin is sin. Understand that. Love doesn't mean you only love people who are sinless. If that's the case, makes it easy. I don't have to love any of you. You don't have to love me. We're good. But we missed an opportunity because society was going one way and we just went right along with it. And now it's kind of switching, transitioning. Society's going in the other direction. In fact, if you read lists of things about why millennials and Gen Zers are abandoning the church, on that list is almost always something to do with how the church views gender issues. Almost always. And it's because they didn't see any other way. The only way they saw was be like everybody else and treat them like pariahs or embrace them and everything's good. That's the only choices they saw. They never saw consistently from the church people who said, look, we love you, we'll help you, we're there for you, we'll walk with you, but understand, the Bible says that what you're doing is sin. They never saw that. And now we, 
are seeing the consequences of it. Well, can't put the genie back in the bottle. What's done is done. But we have to think moving forward, what do we need to do? We need to think moving forward, where are the societal norms today? See, now we're kind of good with it. We're kind of good with being the prophet, the radical, the one standing against society because society seems to be going so far away from, from biblical standards. And we're good with that. But where were we for the last 20, 30, 40, 50 years? Where were we? That's the question. See, obedience to God means that we will, we will often go against culture. But we don't go against culture just to go against culture. We go against culture because, because God's word is saying go against culture. Don't just embrace whatever culture says. We need to stand for truth. We need to stand for what is right. And it needs to be regardless of the cost. And if most of us are honest about this, we don't really know this. Because if I were to ask you, what has your faith cost you? What has your faith Most of us, nothing. Most of us living as Christians, we've never lost a job. We've never lost a promotion. We've, you know, you know it's never had neighbors that shun us and don't want to talk to us. At the most, maybe some of us had families that were from a different religion that maybe, you know, kind of rejected us. But what has obedience to God cost us? But there's something else here. There's something else here about why obedience cannot leave Christianity. And it has to do with the nature of our relationship to God and who we are and who God is. If God knows everything, if God has all power, if this is God and he's perfect and he's good and he's loving, the best thing he can do for us is give us direction. The best thing he can do for us is tell us the things that we should do help us. The best thing he can do is give us commandments. If we are people who believe that truth, believe the truth of who God is, the best thing we can do is obey. What else would you do? It would be a natural response. If, if if you were stuck in a building you didn't know anything about, and then suddenly it catches on fire and it fills with smoke, and, and someone says, I, I, I know the way out, and you actually believe them. You say, I believe you know the way out. And the person says, I know the way out, and, and, and it's safe, there's no smoke, there's no fire, we'll get out. And you say, I believe, I believe, I believe. And he, and he goes, come on. And you go, nah, I'm going to hang out here for a while. You would think, that's crazy. I would never do that. 
And yet as Christians, that's what we do. We say, we believe, Jesus, you are the Savior of the world. We believe you are the Lord. We believe you're the one who, who's the only one who knows the best, highest, the good way to live. We believe all of that. And Jesus says, come on. And we're like, ah, maybe, um, you know, maybe tomorrow. Well, maybe I'll come for a little while, then I'm, I'm going gonna, gonna to go back. Or, you know, Jesus, why don't you go ahead and come back and tell me all about it? Don't you know I have, you know, I have a hard time getting around? Don't you know I'm kind of comfortable? Oh, but, 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 but we believe. We believe. See, that's what John is saying. Again, everybody thinks John is this that that nice, soft boy who's sitting in the la, you know the, the Last Supper picture. You know, that's what they all think. But no, he's throwing punches. He says, "If you say you know him, and you don't keep his commandments, you're a liar." We're not supposed to say that. We're supposed to say, like, well, you know, we're all flawed. We all got our things. We all kind of, you know, pick and choose. That's what we're supposed to say. That's what John says. John says, you're lying. In fact, he doubles down on it. He doesn't just say, you're lying. He says, the truth is not in you. And I think what John's trying to say is, you might know the truth. You might be able to check all the boxes of correct beliefs. But the truth is not in you. The truth is not is not transforming you. The truth is not directing your life, changing your life. Instead, it's this, this nice set of facts that you have in a book that you really, really, really believe is true. But the truth isn't in you. Again, if we really believe that God is who he says he is, if we really believe that Jesus is who he says he is, if we really believe that we know Jesus, that he's the perfect son of God, the perfect expression of love, perfect goodness, if we really believe he's the savior and he's the Lord, but he's also the Lord who is your friend, if we really believe that he is the king of kings and Lord of lords and the good shepherd, else would you do than obey him? What else would you do but, but constantly ask, what else can I do? What's the next thing? Tell me more. Help me more. Lead me more. Direct me more. Again, these, these messages are hard because, because 
we're trying to connect what we say we believe with how we live. These aren't popular things to talk about. They're hard things. And believe me, I, when, I, when I prepare these sermons, I don't have any one of you in mind. I don't think like, oh, it would be really good for Jeremy to hear this. No. If anybody, I think it's really good for Matt to hear this. Really good for him to check all the things he says he believes. And how does he live? see, the second thing he says is, again, saying the same thing with different words. He says, obedience to God means God's love is perfected in us. And we've talked about this before. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. But it's not about just doing the right things. It's about doing the right things for the right reasons. And for Christians, the right reasons is always out of love for God and out of love for others. That's the right reason. And yeah, it's hard because mixed in all of that is our love for ourselves. But God says, if you will be obedient, my obedience helps develop, helps perfect this love in you. The next thing he tells us is, is, is he says that if you... You know, if you say you know him, then you will want to walk. You will want to walk the way that Christ walked. The Bible, the New Testament, uses the word walk as a kind of a kind of a metaphor for living. And he's and he's saying, like, you, you want to live like Christ. And remember, it's not just do what Christ would do. First of all, you cannot do what Christ would do. There's some situations where if you ask, what would Jesus do? Oh, he would put mud on the guy's eye and then he could see. Are you going to do that? No. So don't even think that you can do the things that Jesus did. He's Jesus. But we should still want to be like him. That same heart, that same compassion that, that saw this blind man and wanted to heal him. That same compassion that wanted to demonstrate God's power to an unbelieving people. We should still want to do that. We can't do so many of the things that Jesus did. But we can still be like him. And the good news is that we don't have to be perfectly like him today, tomorrow, next year. But I like this idea of walking because it's, it's this idea of like, this is a, this is a journey. We're going to walk like Christ walked. And yes, you know, Christ is Christ and he's perfect in every way. But the idea of walking means there's some movement to it. That we don't have to beat ourselves up because we're not as good as Jesus. If that's the case, you beat yourself up all the time. want to be like Jesus? Do we even want to be what Jesus is? Do we even want to be kind? 
Do we even want to be humble? Do we even want to be servants? Do we even want to be gentle? Do we even want to love? Do we really want to love our enemies? Even if we know we can't, I say, I still want to, because that's what Jesus did. Are we willingly lay willing are we willing to lay down our lives not just for our friends not just for good people but for sinners and enemies are we willing to set aside our rights so that we might serve others are we willing to be friends of sinners and are we willing, once we make friends with sinners, to, to help our, our friends who are sinners to come out of their sin? Are we willing? It's, it's again, it's the question a lot of pastors don't want to ask. Because if you keep asking this question, a lot of people might eventually go, no, I really don't. And if you say, no, I really don't, then you might come to the next conclusion is, if I really don't, why am I here? Why am I showing up at church? Why am I reading the Bible? I don't want this stuff. Thank you, Pastor. I can go my way. But I ask these questions not because I get joy out of asking these questions. I ask these questions because they're the questions that come from the text. Do we even want to walk as Jesus walked? Remembering that his path was one marked with sorrow, one marked with suffering, one that led to the cross. Do we even want that? And you got to understand his sorrow wasn't just sorrow over, you know, the fact that things weren't working out. His sorrow was because he. He loved and cared so much for his people. And even though he was right there in front of them, they could not see him. Do we want that kind of sorrow? And so we come back again to this point about obedience. And it's again repeated here and again and again that the truth that we believe is really not what we say, but it's the truth we live. And for obedience to be true, it has to be from love for God. It has to be, I go back and forth on whether it should be obedient love or loving obedience, but it means getting it all right, right beliefs, right motive, right action. And as we talked about before, the good news is we're, that even though we know we're not going to get it right, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. That we have an advocate. We have Jesus Christ who stands as our mediator, as our high priest, 
so that we can go and we can live and we can, we can grow and we can develop and we can make mistakes. Because he is faithful and just to forgive. Sometimes we claim to be Christians because we said the right words. We prayed some prayer. Or maybe we believe we're Christians because we, we've done some things. We've done some, people might think, are mighty things. We might claim to be Christians because we have the right doctrine. We can check all the boxes. But understand, what John is saying is, that's important. But it doesn't really provide the evidence if we know we have the right beliefs, but we don't love our enemies. If we know we have the right beliefs, and frankly, most people in the world, we don't hate or love, we're kind of neutral. If we have the right beliefs, and we don't forgive. We have the right beliefs, and we hold grudges. We gossip. We refuse to forgive. We say we have the right beliefs, but when we do things, even acts of service, it's not out of love. It's so, you know, we can earn points with God or with other people, or maybe it's just out of a sense of duty. If we hold to truth, and at the center of that truth is that through faith in Jesus Christ, He makes us new. He gives us His Spirit, and His Spirit unites us in a supernatural way. We live that truth. Then we know. Then the world knows. The proof the world needs is also, I think, sometimes the proof we need. And I hope more and more of you are having the thought that I've had for a while, which is, it's impossible. We cannot do this. Because I know that when it happens, I'm going to be like, God, you are so awesome. You did 